Good afternoon, brethren. Very happy to be here with you and be back from the trip. I bring you greetings from uh, Los Angeles and Phoenix and our brethren there. And I'm sure my wife says hello, too. We're glad to see all of you again. We had an excellent trip and everything went well. I had a number of special meetings with individuals during my trip that are of note. Uh, not Some are not in our church, but maybe later. I don't want to describe that for their benefit. But we had 145 people in the Los Angeles area meeting with us and about 101 in Phoenix. So we had pretty good crowds, although we certainly had a very warm welcome in Phoenix as well. As they said, it was about 118 degrees. Every day we were there, it was either between around 114 and 118 degrees. And some said it sets to 127. Now, I'm not sure about that, but it did get up pretty hot. So it was unusual. It has cooled off now. Brethren, events are really stirring people, as Dr. Winnell said in his update, regarding the Middle East. And I think we need to realize that. We haven't had a sermon on prophecy for a long time here. It's been two or three months, I believe more like three months. We've touched on it, and Dr. Winnell often touches on it, as he does in the update. But as far as getting a whole sermon explaining this, we don't get very many of those. And we do need one once in a while. And because of these events, I think I would be remiss if I didn't talk about what's going on right in front of our eyes. My wife was talking about some events on television the other night about people rioting here and there in these Arab countries and how they were burning our flag. And it showed four different places at once, I think she said, where they were burning the American flag. And, uh, you know, that's happened before, but not very often. All over the world, they're beginning to do that. And a tremendous wave of hatred is beginning to build up against Britain, against America, and against Israel, because both America, with Britain's help, are apparently supporting Israel as they look at it. And uh, these Arab nations are beginning to hate us, and it's getting to be a very, very serious thing. Our effort in Iraq has certainly broken down, and they're calling it civil war, many of their own leaders there. There's not going to be real democracy in Iraq. It's not going to work. The events over in the Gaza Strip have broken down, too, as you know, and full-scale warfare has broken out there. Also, the big thing right now in Lebanon is developing into what you know some of these outside preachers are calling Armageddon. And it's not going to be Armageddon because a lot of people don't even know what Armageddon is. They, they really don't understand, and it's some years away. But nevertheless, it's a very serious situation And these events with the United States apparently backing Israel as they go in and blowing up all these people and maybe even innocent civilians, and they are innocent in the sense they just lived there and they felt they couldn't personally oppose the Hezbollah and so on. So it's a terrible situation. In a sense, Israel, the nation of Israel, is damned if they do and damned if they don't, as we say. If they don't stamp out the Hezbollah on their border, their rockets are going to keep raining to Israel and killing their own people. But the Hezbollah, these Arab terrorist groups like them and Hamas, are so clever and so rotten that they put their missiles right in civilian neighborhoods, and the Israelis know that, and the civilians, in a sense, ought to rise up and say, you can't do that, but they don't because they're just cowered by the power of these men carrying automatic rifles and so on, so they let it happen. So when the Israelis go in to stop all this, they have to kill some civilian people, which they don't mean to do. That's not their point, but they've got to do it. It's a terrible thing. 
And brethren, that's going to begin to happen to us. And I think a lot of us ought to realize that. It seems like everything we, you know, or do turns bad now the last few years. And that's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And I'm not kidding. That's just the way it's going to be. Will it all be down? No. There will be some little ups, you know, when you're climbing Mount Whitney. It's not all straight up. You kind of go like this, and then you go up and then down a little bit. I've climbed it when you come down the same way. It's not straight down like a toboggan slide. You go down, and then you kind of zag up a little bit, and the trail heads on down. But the general direction is down, and that's what's happening to us. God's protective hand is not on the United States and Britain and Israel anymore. It's interesting how Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh are sticking together and they're backing their brother Judah. And the world as a whole doesn't know that. They think all the Jews are Israelites and all the Israelites are Jews. But, of course, God shows they had about 200 years of warfare where Israel was fighting the Jews. And I hope all of you, brethren, here and around the world will read, and if necessary, reread Mr. John O'Gwen's wonderful booklet, on American Britain and prophecy. You need to understand that booklet. I think we call it, we keep changing the titles, but I think it's United States and Britain and Bible prophecy. We've had so many titles through the years. When I was first writing in for it back in the 1940s, it was just the United States and prophecy. Then I think Dr. Hay and I talked Mr. Armstrong into changing it into United States and Britain and prophecy. And then later we changed it to the United States and British Commonwealth and prophecy. And then we, anyway, so sometimes I get our titles mixed up because of all the changes on those topics through the years. But get that booklet. You need to understand that key. You really do, even some of our brethren, I find, don't fully understand that vital key to really understand prophecy. When prophecy talks about something that is yet to happen to the house of Israel, it's normally talking about things that are going to affect the house of Joseph, the British, and American people. And we make that plain in that booklet in many of our articles. And that is what is beginning to happen. So these things are breaking down. This war in Lebanon is pulling in the Arab nations, even the so-called moderate Arab nations, from all over and turning them against us. And we need to realize how serious that is. From today's paper, your paper, if you live right here in Charlotte, this is page uh, 5, 5A, the first section. U.S. strategy in Mideast could backfire, the critics say. Kuala Lumpur, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice and President Bush say they're now pressing for a quick ceasefire in Lebanon because they want a lasting peace instead. So far, the Israeli campaign in Lebanon appears to be strengthening the militant Islamic group Hezbollah and its allies in Syria and Iran and weakening Lebanon's fragile democratic government for the, uh, rather than the other way around. In the longer run, critics say, uh, Rice's uh, refusal to intervene more force, forcefully to help push Hezbollah to new heights of, is, is causing Hezbollah to rise to new heights of popularity across the Arab world. Sowing anger at the tacit U.S. backing of the Israeli offensive and weakening in America's relations with friends in Europe and the world. And, of course, it talks about uh, how they see we're backing the Hezbollah and they don't like that. Then another article on the far left here, a smaller article, yet very important. Cairo, Egypt, rising Arab anger over the Israeli offensive against Hezbollah appears to have pushed conservative rulers, so-called moderate rulers as we used to regard them, in the Arab world 
uh, to focus or refocus their criticism away from the Shiite guerrillas and unto Israel. The most dramatic turn comes from Saudi Arabia. You know, they've been a friend of ours, supposedly, in the past, and now they're turning on it. I better not read every paragraph here. But uh, King Abdullah warned, quote, If the option of peace fails as a result of Israeli arrogance, then the only option remaining will be war. In other words, the Saudis will get into the war against Israel, and if they get into the war and against Israel, what does that mean? That means they will get into war against us because we are bound by treaty to back Israel. Egyptian president, they're the largest single Arab nation in the Middle East. Egyptian president, Hosni Mubarak, an important mediator in uh, Arab-Israeli conflict for the last 25 years, now mixes his condemnation of Hezbollah's move with sharp criticism of Israel's response. He calls it very disproportionate and so on. So he's getting upset at us too. If the Saudis, if the Egyptians, and the entire Arab world turns directly against us because of backing Israel, we're going to have something on our hands that we have not had before, brethren. And I think we need to realize what's building up in that particular way. So they've had these flag burnings and all the rest of it, a very serious thing. And we need to realize, of course, how helpless the Arabs feel now because they're divided. They're not all together. But these events now taking place are going to push them, push them to get together. And that will be called, as most of you know, the king of the south. The king of the south. They were the ones. Egypt was historically the leader of what the Bible describes as the king of the south. They are directly south of Jerusalem. And all Bible directions are given from Jerusalem. Now, there's a peculiar fellow over in Oklahoma who keeps saying that the king of the south is going to be Iran. It's not Iran. I'm going to say that dogmatically. No way. Iran is northeast of Jerusalem. It is not south. And the Iranians are Shiites beside that. And the vast majority of the Muslims are Sunnis. They are not Shiites. And they have said they will not accept a Shiite leader. There are other reasons to indicate that the king of the south is not going to be Iran. I'll just say that again. Iran will not be the king of the south. So we'll soon see who's right on that in the next few years. It's going to be perhaps Egypt or Saudi Arabia or some nation just south of Jerusalem. But the king of the south is being brought together by this this problem. It's driving these nations to get together. And when they get together then I think you know what's also going to happen. That will then, as they have their power and perhaps cut off the oil by some provocation, the United States of Europe to get together. The coming beast power will then get together as the Bible talks. All these events, my brethren, are setting the stage for what we've been preaching for the last many decades, which Mr. Armstrong has been preaching perhaps or did preach for all of his ministry. And I've been preaching it for over 50 years myself. I had my first sermons back in 1952, and I raised up the San Diego church. So as of about five weeks from now, I guess I could say I've been preaching these things for 54 years. And I mean it. The very first sermon I gave, or one of the first in San Diego, made some of a couple of women so mad, they, they argued with me later. They were wax. They were women's army corps. And I was talking about the fact that Germany was going to come back And they'd been over there. They said, there's no way Germany can come back again. They're going to be down for 100 years. Those people are starving. Well, of course, they are back. 
And all the scholars acknowledge they are already the economic heart of Europe and are beginning to be the political and military heart of Europe already. So that's already happened, but they didn't understand that, of course. But we've been preaching these things a long time. So these things are going to happen. And this war, as it's going to be and developing to be, between Christianity and Islam, and remember, brethren, this is not just a war between Israel and Lebanon or between the United States and one or two Arab nations. It is, in effect, as many scholars have acknowledged, President Bush doesn't like to say that. He says Islam is a loving religion. He's trying to be the good guy. But Islam is not a loving religion. Islam started right out butchering people and said, you join our religion or we will kill you. And that's what they did all over the Middle East. That's the way the whole thing started. It's been that way from the very beginning. But at any rate, the war between Christianity and Islam is going to become more obvious. And then that will bring forth the good graces of the Catholic Church and the Pope. And they will get into it. And as we know, the woman rides the beast. And this great whore of revelation will be guiding and influencing this coming dictator and this coming ten-nation union in Europe that's coming to go forth. So where are we, brethren? And here's the sermon title, if you want to write a title, What Lies Just Ahead? I can't give you all of it today, by the way, but I'll give you some highlights from one point of view. What Lies Just Ahead? Let's turn back in beginning here to Leviticus 26. Mr. Herbert Armstrong used to start in this passage quite often because it was, as he said, a foundational prophecy, a very basic beginning prophecy in the Bible. Leviticus chapter 26, he was talking to the ancestors of many of us directly, the Israelites. I was being questioned the other day. My wife was kind of amused by that. Where was that? Someone was really asking me my background for a certain reason and what was my uh, mother's name or something. And, and he was a Jew, a Jewish waiter in that restaurant. That's where it was in Phoenix. And I said, my mother's name was Kohane. He said, wow, there's no more Jewish name than that. <laughs> Kohane means priest in the Hebrew language. So my mother was not Jewish, but that name has come down. And Jeremiah brought a whole group and so many histories, as Dr. Winnell can explain more thoroughly than me. He brought a whole group of people over, Jeremiah the prophet, to ancient Ireland. And uh, those names are through sprinkled through there. And they're not normal Irish names or Celtic names at all. They're Jewish names. But that's another story. Anyway, let's go to Leviticus 26. And he's talking to our ancestors of Israel and Judah. And he says, as you see in verse 3, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments, then I'll give you rain in due season and you'll dwell safely. You'll have all these blessings. But in verse 14, if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and listen, brethren, if you despise, if you despise my statutes or if your soul abhors my judgments, what does our Supreme Court do? What do so many of our local courts and our local politicians do? They despise God's word by their actions. They are so anxious to push men to marry men and women to marry women and open up this whole floodgate of immorality. And they let all these things happen right in our so-called Christian nation. And God says we're despising him by our actions. He says if you do this, 
but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you. What's the first thing God said he would do to Israel? Terrorism. It can be translated and certainly understood that way. Terror of various sorts, but that would include terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And, of course, wasting disease, one of the most terrible wasting diseases in human history is AIDS. The whole body just implodes on itself and wastes away, and that's growing all over. Whole young societies in Africa are being cut off by AIDS. And now the perverts in San Francisco or New York bathhouses, as you probably read, are getting bold again since they've had these cocktail mixtures of drugs. And now they're beginning to practice more casual, uh, careless sex and so on. And it's rising again among many of them. You shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemy shall eat it. There is going to be drought and famine here. I will set my face against you. You'll be defeated before your enemies. Ask the brethren in South Africa about that. Ask brethren a little bit later on in some of these other outlying areas, and they'll see that that is beginning to happen to us. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. I don't mean to say that everyone who punishes us is bad. Sometimes when I talk about the Germans being the head nation of the United States of Europe, people say, are you anti-German? No, I'm partly German about one-sixteenth German through Harold Ickes, the former Secretary of the Interior. I'm just saying God uses different people to bring us down. That's his will. That's his purpose. He is their paddle to spank us with. (laughs) And they're being used by him for that very purpose because of our sins. And after this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times, or as many translations have it, sevenfold. It will get seven times worse. For your sins. I will break the pride of your power. Right now, brethren, we're having things turn bad for us all over the Middle East. We're having people turn against us and burn our flag and curse us all through Central and South America. We're having people curse us and turn against us in various nations in Asia and all around the world. Right now, the American dollar is going down and down and down, and inflation is going to go up if that process does not stop. These things are happening, they're very real. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. That means the coming drought. And your strength shall be spent in vain. Your land shall not yield its produce. And if you still walk contrary and are not willing to obey, God wants us to obey his commandments. I will bring on you sevenfold, again, more plagues according to your sins. God will send various plagues on us, terrible disease epidemics and so on. Well, I won't read all of this. Read the rest of it when you get home. Leviticus 26 is talking about us because we have turned away from God's commandments and we despise his statutes. Now turn to Jeremiah 30. And brethren, as I've told you, but please get this in your mind so you can understand. You're called to be teachers. All of you ought to be teachers later on. And Paul told the brethren in in Israel The Hebrews, in writing the book of Hebrews, when for the time you ought to be teachers, many of you still need the milk all over again. Jeremiah and Ezekiel, both these books, were written together at the same time. They were written over 100 years after ancient Israel went into slavery. Over 100 years later. It's as though I were prophesying that America is going to have something big happen And you said, well, no, that happened back during 
what I would say, the Revolutionary War over a hundred years ago, you see. Well, no, they're talking about something different. God is not talking about something that happened over a hundred years earlier. He's talking about an end-time punishment here. Now, these are the words, verse 4, Jeremiah 30, verse 4, the eternal spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Not Judah and Judah, Israel and Judah, both parts of the whole house of Israel. We've heard a voice of trembling, of fear. Why are men grabbing their stomach as in a a woman in travail? Why are they scared to death? Their stomach is nodding up. When fear, all faces turn pale. Alas, for that, that day is great so that none is like it. There's never been a time of terrible, horrible trouble on the earth like this coming time on modern Israel, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. All of Israel. None is like it. It is the time of whose trouble? Russia's trouble? China's trouble? The Jews' trouble? No, it is the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is the name given to all of Israel. You say, Jacob was a Jew. I was just reading this book recently, Jerusalem Countdown by uh, John Hagee, who has some interesting points, but he's mainly wrong all through the book. And he keeps confusing Israel and Judah. He can't understand what's happening because he doesn't know that. And he quotes these prophecies about Jacob that are talking about uh, Judah. He says they're meaning the Jews. Well, of course, Jacob lived, remember, Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons and one, only one of those sons was named Judah. And from Judah proceed the Jews. So many prophecies about Jacob are not talking just about the Jews. They're talking about all 12 tribes, all 12 tribes. This is what's going to happen. It's the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. And, of course, he goes on to show that's the Christ coming. For it shall come to pass in that day that I'll break his yoke, a yoke of slavery from our necks, and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, a future slavery on modern the modern house of Israel and Judah. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. It's the time of the resurrection from the dead. King David will be resurrected. It's not something way back there. It's something to happen in the near future. He says to us in verse 14, All your lovers, Moffat translates it allies, our national allies that we pay to support. You know, the Egyptians, we poured billions of dollars into Egypt. We poured billions of dollars into Saudi Arabia to help prop them up. All your lovers have forgotten you. They not, do not seek you, for I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the chastening of a cruel one. Why? Why would God do this to a wonderful Christian nation that loves him so much? <laughs> well, I think you know the answer. For the multitude of your iniquities... Because your sins have increased. That's why God says. So that's what is going to happen because of our national sins, our increasing involvement in hedonism in every possible form, to having fun, 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 sexual uh, illicit sex, violence, lying, cheating, and the highest levels of government right down through the Enron scandal, right down through the WorldCom scandal, right down through all these other corporate scandals affecting almost every major corporation, almost every state. And most of our recent presidents have been involved in one scandal or another, or at least some of their leading cabinet members. Most of you know that if you read. I read a lot. 
Verse 23, Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind that will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not return until he's done it and until he's performed the intents of his heart. Listen, in the latter days, the latter days, you will consider it. That's when these things are to happen. They're happening now in the latter days, and they're going to affect your life tremendously over the next 7 to 15 years, probably a lot more than many of you realize. A lot of people like to stick their head in the sand and hope it'll all go away. Well, I wish it would all go away too sometime humanly when I think about my children and grandchildren, and I've got two beautiful little granddaughters. I wish we could have the money and we could just skip right by the tribulation and all the rest and just go straight into the kingdom. But brethren, it ain't going to work that way. <laughs> We've got to be humble first. As a nation and as a people and as a world, we've got to learn our lessons first. And my wife often joins me in watching television news at night, especially BBC, which is our favorite. And last night and nearly every night recently has been showing the terrible things like in Darfur, where they've had literally thousands and hundreds of thousands of people being beaten up and killed and women raped and brutalized. And last night it was people in the Congo and they talked about 25,000 women being raped just in eastern Congo. And they're using rape as an instrument of war. They try to brutalize women. They brutalize one another. Human life is cheap. They have an absolutely damnable ethic over there. And most of these nations, of course, that do these things are Muslim, as a matter of fact. When you look into the religion of the ones, the Arab Janjaweed that come in beating up on these blacks in various parts of Africa. It's horrible. They are not God's people. They're not following God's ways. Muslim is not God's religion at all. So we do need to understand that and learn, learn where the truth of God really is. All right, it's in the latter days. Now let's turn to Matthew, if you would. Turn to the book of Matthew, chapter uh, 24. Of course, a very, perhaps the most basic prophecy about, pro uh, scripture about prophecy in the entire New Testament, as you know. Matthew, chapter 24. And I'm going to begin in verse 3, as we usually do. Here, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came. Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming in the end? Not the end of Jerusalem, but the end of the age. Some modernistic liberal scholars try to say that's talking about what happened to Jerusalem in 70 A.D. No, a thousand times no. It's the end of this whole age, this 6,000-year period that God has given humankind under Satan the devil's influence to try out our ideas of education, our ideas of politics, our ideas of society and recreation, and our ideas of religion under the influence of the devil. There is going to be an end to this age. Jesus said, Take heed that no one deceive you, for many shall come in my name. Not a tiny few Church of God people. The many, the vast majority, when you look into it, are always the broad and narrow, uh, broad way. And they're the ones that are talking, saying, about talk about Christ. They will come in my name, saying I'm Christ, but they will deceive many. Then he talks about wars and world wars. And then he says, famine will come, lack of food, pestilence, horrible disease epidemics, and earthquakes, earthquakes. As, Ma, as Luke translates it, great earthquakes, not normal earthquakes. They're going to be worse than that have ever happened. 
All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you, the true saints of God, up to tribulation. And many of us, of course, if we're not watching and praying, would have to go into that tribulation. God help us to be Philadelphians and to have our heart in God's work, to have our heart in God's word and God's law and avoid that tribulation as God promises. So then many will be offended and betray one another. That's already beginning to happen. Then many false prophets will rise and deceive many. But he endures to the end, not he who starts out and turns aside. He that endures to the end shall be saved. But this gospel shall be preached to all the world as a witness. Again, any of you who are new, God does not say some of these Protestant groups and Bill Bright, who recently died, and some of these great Protestant leaders, I think they're sincere men. They're talking about getting together this great wave of love of the Lord and evangelism. They're going to save the world. They think wrongly that Christ is trying to save the whole world. If God were trying to save the whole world right now, how come most human beings in every single age of the world since Adam have never even heard the name of Christ, let alone believed it? He's not trying to save the world now, or else he would be doing it. His name is El Shaddai, God Almighty. He's not trying to save the world now, but he is giving those who endure to the end, who are called, a chance to be saved and then if the, he says the gospel will be preached to all the world, not to convert everybody, but as a witness. So at least they can say, God, God, why didn't you tell me? He'll say, I did tell you. I thought Mr. Bonjour's fine sermonette touched on that. You know, we wish we ought to. We should have ought to. We should have however he put it better than me. And, uh, you know, we'll think that later on if we're not listening right now. We wish we would have. We wish we ought to and so on. So we've got to do our part. Therefore, and then the end will come. Therefore, verse 15 is a very key verse. When you see, you will see, brethren, if you're still alive on your television and newspapers, perhaps, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those in Judea flee and so on, because that leads right into the tribulation. That is the last major event, note this, that leads right into the great tribulation. Watch for a coming abomination of, dress, of, of, of uh, uh, desolation. And notice he said, spoken of by whom? By Daniel the prophet. Jesus validated Daniel as a faithful prophet of God. So many of the Old Testament prophets are quoted to as the word of God throughout the New Testament. They are prophecies inspired of God. So this is going to happen. Then he describes in verse 21, then there will be great tribulation. Where did we read that? We just got through reading it back in Jeremiah 30. A time of trouble so great there's never been the like known or ever shall be. Great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. We now have the capacity for cosmicide, the utter destruction of all human life off this earth. That was not possible until our modern time. For the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. God will cut the whole thing short. Then if anyone says, look, here is Christ or there, like he's going to rapture the saints away or something else, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets, notice this, brethren, in this time when the uh, time is just before the great tribulation, 
and people are wondering what's going on, and this great sign of a great uh, abomination is set up, there will be false Christs and false prophets and show signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. He said, Jesus said, look, folks, I'm telling you now. I'm telling you now. False ministers will come and they will preach and they will false teaching and they will bring false miracles. Not the humble miracles of quietly healing the sick like Jesus did, but false miracles will come. We read in Revelation 13, verse 13, about this coming great false prophet who will, in fact, bring fire down from heaven by which he deceives those who worship the beast and its image. Many false prophets will arise. So we do need to understand and be aware. If people do this and that, God says back in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20, Isaiah 8, verse 20, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it's because there is no light in them. They may perform false miracles, tricks, and sometimes real miracles to a degree, because Satan is the prince of the power of the air. God gave Pharaoh's magicians power to turn the water into blood. God gave Pharaoh's magicians the power to do one or two other miracles. Then finally, I think it was the plague three or four, suddenly they couldn't. And then God's true servants, Moses and Aaron, kept right on doing even greater miracles. And Pharaoh's magicians at that time mourned him. They said, this is the finger of God. That day is coming. But in the meantime, there will be false ministers with false miracles. And a lot of exciting things are going to happen yet in your lifetime. And you need to understand and be ready. Not be astonished by it because it is going to happen. So we do need to be aware. All right, let's go to Luke 21 now at this point, if you would. Luke chapter 21. Here, beginning in verse 7, we find the same basic prophecy They ask him, when will these things be? What will be the sign when these things are about to take place? He warns about false prophets, about war. And notice verse 11. There will be great earthquakes, not small earthquakes, great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences and fearful sights. And again, as I pointed out before, looking that up in the commentaries in the Greek interlinear, the word here is sometimes translated terrors just like it was back in Leviticus. See, terrorism, terrorism, terrorist activities, like 9-11. Terrorism and great signs from heaven, and then they're going to begin to persecute God's true servants. He says in verse 22, For these are the days of vengeance, that all things that are written may be fulfilled, the wind-up of all the great prophecies of the Bible. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And when you read the rest of the Bible, it's not just the Jewish people, it's the whole house of Israel, talking about America and Britain and so on as well. And they will fall by the edge of the sword, as God tells us in Jeremiah chapter chapter 30, all Israel. They shall fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And then he says something specific, and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. All right, here you have it. Jerusalem is going to be taken over one more time. Now, there are a lot of Gentiles there, but the Jews still technically control Jerusalem. They have their armies there, and they are in charge. They will be conquered, not in the sweet by and by, my friends, but in the next 5 to 15 years, no doubt. 
they will be conquered. And once again, Jerusalem, that great city I visited three times or four, will be taken over by the Gentiles. These things are not way off. They're coming in your lifetime, most of you, and you will need to understand. Some of us may die before that time. That doesn't change what I'm saying. Just because Mr. Armstrong died and he prophesied the Berlin Wall would come down and the nations of Eastern Europe would break free before it ever happened. That didn't mean his prophecy was not true. It happened. Major things are happening to major nations. We were the only ones saying those things. So you need to understand these words are coming from God, not from me. All right, let's go back to Daniel 11, if you would. Turn with me now to the prophet. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Okay, here's where we want to go then, right back there. Daniel 11, verse 31, is a prophecy that Mr. Herbert Armstrong and, frankly, many even Protestant evangelicals who believe in prophecy, they don't understand all of it, but they know it's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes as a type of a coming great dictator as you get toward the end of this long prophecy. And forces shall be mustered by him, verse 31, and they shall take or defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices. What? There are going to be daily sacrifices there. There are not daily sacrifices there now, but there will be in the next several years. Daily sacrifices somewhere in Jerusalem, probably on the Temple Mount, where that has always been. Daily sacrifices will be taken away, and they will place there the abomination of desolation. Now, we've said before, and I say again, we're not specifically predicting a temple will be built. I think one will be, but that's not definite in the Bible. Maybe it will simply be a quickie altar. You know how quick the Jews can do things. They don't mess around. They just do it right now. <laughs> they had the six-day war and all the rest of it. So they may put up a temporary altar or a makeshift temple quickly or whatever they do. But something will be there to enable them to offer sacrifices. Why? How? They can't offer sacrifices now. The Muslims outnumber them 20 or 30 to 1 through that part of the world. They'd come screaming and fighting and bombing. They'd simply revolutionize the whole Muslim world if the Jews tried to take that over now. They've got to let the Arabs have it, if they do. And the Arabs have the Al-Aqsa Mosque up there and the Dome of the Rock. And the Israelis have to just pray at the Wailing Wall nearby. They don't even have total control of that part of Jerusalem. But here they will. They're going to have a temple or an altar, and they will be offering sacrifices at that time in the near future. Now, we will come back to this chapter in just a moment, but rather than staying in chapter 11, turn to chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. He's certainly talking about the time of the end, if you read this, skim through these verses. And he says here, to Daniel, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed, these prophecies, until the time of the end. That's when these things are going to occur, and we are living in those prophesied times. Many shall be purified and made white and refined. And brethren, God is testing me and testing me and testing me, and he's testing you and testing you and testing you all through this audience and all you brethren around the world. Different things will happen to you to shake you, to humble you, and make God see where you really stand. Will you obey him in spite of trials and tests? 
Well, you obey him in spite of the death of loved ones, perhaps. Well, you obey him in spite of losing your job. Well, you obey him in spite of perhaps of being beaten up or thrown into jail. Like literally thousands of God's servants have had to do down through the ages. Will you do that? God is watching us. How quickly some of us get upset about little, tiny, picky little things. And so quickly turn aside or get upset. God is watching. So he is going to test us. But the wicked shall do wickedly, and they certainly will. And the world's going to get worse before it gets better. And none of the wicked shall understand. They won't know what's going on. You know, you read Jesus' Gospels and uh, uh, his message back in the Gospels, and he said the time of the end will be like the days of Noah. They will be buying and selling and eating and drinking right up until the end, just like they were, you know, in certain places of the world at least, till Moses entered the ark. There'll be the tribulation, but all up and down the first in Dom and Berlin and the Via Veneto in Rome and the Champs-Élysées and Paris, probably and otherwise, some of these other places where the, the, you know, beast powers in charge, they'll think, well, we kind of stamped out these crazy Americans. They thought we're so great. And now we're the great Catholic power and we're setting up the Catholic millennium we've longed for and Hitler talked about. Everything's fine. And all of a sudden, terrible things begin to happen, one right after the other and bring them down. Other prophecies talk about that. And from, uh, none of the wise shall understand, but the wise shall understand. But from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away. All right, here it comes again. Verse 11. At the very end, daily sacrifices, no doubt animal sacrifices in Jerusalem. That's where it's always been among the Jewish people. And Daniel was writing to the Jewish people. Is taken away. And the abomination of desolation is set up. There should be 1,230 days or 90 days. We used to teach, and this may be true, the church may flee, be taken to a place of safety by God himself 30 days before the tribulation. And then the great tribulation lasts 1,260 days, which equals, of course, God has 30 days and months in his prophetic timetable, three and one-half years of the great tribulation. So the church may flee 30 days ahead of time to a place of safety. It's not a, ra- it's not a rapture. God never talks about the rapture. The word rapture is not even mentioned in the Bible. And if you read your Bible carefully, it's absolutely wrong, totally unbiblical and frankly silly. God's not going to just jerk people out of airplanes and the pilot's gone and the plane crashes like in their Left Behind series, you know. Suddenly you're riding along the bus and the bus driver's raptured away and everyone's killed because an unthinking God just jerked away the driver who happened to be an evangelical and the rest of the people in the bus weren't. He doesn't do crazy things like that. And the Bible talks of nothing about some rapture. It's just silly, based on nothing. But it does talk about a place of safety several different times. So... There may be a time when we're taken out of this world 30 days ahead, as you read in Revelation 3, if we're watching and praying and if we hang on to the truth and so on, or Philadelphians, then he said he will keep us from that terrible time of trouble that is coming on the whole world. The whole world, he describes there in Revelation chapter 3, for the true Philadelphians. Not those who call themselves Philadelphians that aren't, by the way, but the real Philadelphians. There are many people who call themselves Christians that are not either, of course. It takes more than calling yourself something to be that. But anyway, this is another scripture about the abomination of desolation. 
And I want to say this, brethren, as most of you know. Well, let's go back now to chapter 11 again. It's talking here about uh, in verse uh, 31, the forces shall be mustered by him and so on. This is the original fulfillment of this was under Antiochus Epiphanes. He's called Antiochus IV. He was the king of Syria. And nearly all prophetic scholars and even many outside scholars recognize that uh, Alexander the Great's empire was broken up into four parts and the Syrian part was then headed by this Antiochus the fourth called Epiphanes and that was called the king of the north the Romans took that over and they then became the king of the north but the original fulfillment of this was Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus the fourth of the nation of Syria not Assyria but Syria and he came into Jerusalem and he butchered people and he set up pagan, a pagan altar in the temple of God. He offered swine's flesh. He put up a statue of Jupiter Olympus or some other pagan god and just did horrible things as an abomination, a direct affront to God. And, of course, God later dealt with him in a horrible way. But God allowed that to happen because the Jews had been turning aside so much from God in their sins at that time, God allowed that to happen. That was just a type. That was a type of what's to happen to the end. But before we go on, let's turn back to chapter 9 now. Turn back to chapter 9 of Daniel. There's this abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, Jesus said. All right, get it again in chapter 9. Here in chapter 9, beginning in verse uh, 21, Daniel has been praying and fasting and pouring out his heart, if you read the whole chapter, for understanding as to why they were in captivity all these years. Please give me encouragement, O God. Show me what's going to happen. And boy, God did. And this is one of the most fantastic prophecies in all the Bible. All of chapter 9, 10, and 11, and 12 are the longest single flowing prophecy in the entire Bible, where one prophecy just leads right into another, all four chapters. And so he says here then, uh, at the beginning of your supplications, the angel says, I have uh, heard. the command went out. God says, I'm hearing Daniel, you go. And I've come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Daniel poured out his heart to God. He says, forgive us, O God, have mercy upon us for our sins. And God says, you're greatly beloved. So consider the matter, understand the vision. And then he gives the vision of 70 weeks until the Messiah, 69 weeks or 483 years from 457 clear up until B.C. up until 27 A.D. And, of course, that's when Christ began his ministry. That prophecy we've always understood without me explaining that again. And he says in verse 26, after the 60 and 2 weeks, there were 7 weeks, and then 60 and 2 weeks, meaning a total of 69, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. The Messiah had to die, not for his sins, but for my sins and your sins. He was cut off, and God predicted this hundreds of years in advance, and, of course, in many specific prophecies. Then, the last part of chapter, verse 26, and, brethren, I want to remind you, and especially you young people who may not understand, you say, all these are divided by God into verses and chapters. How come you could break into a verse? 
Well, they were not. <laughs> and all Bible scholars acknowledge that that's not some teaching of this church. If you get the scroll of Isaiah, it's been preserved in the Jewish synagogues and various places. And if you get the scroll of Matthew or Mark or Luke or John or James in the New Testament, they were just long scrolls. No chapters, no verses, no punctuation. Modern translators had to put those in there. That's the reason once in a while where Jesus said, uh, you know, in that place in Luke, he said, uh, I, I tell you uh, that uh, today you will be with me in paradise. I think that's the way the translation's worded. But, of course, it can equally well be translated. Today, I tell you, even as I'm hanging here on the cross, I can tell you, you will not today, but you will someday be with me in a watered garden in a wonderful place. He gave this one uh, criminal who would begin to repent that hope. You'll have a chance, fellow. Someday, I tell you today, even as I'm hanging here. It depends on where the comma is put sometimes. But anyway, men divided these into verses. And sometimes, and most of the time, I think they did a wonderful job. I think God guided them overall. But here, another thought comes in. So Messiah shall not, not be cut off for himself. And a different thought starts here. We've begun to feel in the Council of Elders, and most of us feel this way. And I'm going to say that this is not some absolute doctrine, but I'm suggesting to you that I personally feel this way. And I'm suggesting that this is probably going to happen, but it's not some official thing. The people of the prince who is to come, the prince who is to come, he's already been describing Christ's death. By the hands of Herod, who is this prince who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That was not Christ. It's been talking about Christ and his death already. But the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with the flood. And as is often the case, the flood sometimes indicates a flood of armies. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he, he who is he, if we are correct. The he, the antecedent directly, going right back in the preceding verse of the he, is the prince who is to come. Not Christ. Christ is already dead in this prophecy. The prince who is to come, this final beast, this final Hitler to arise over this ten-nation European power, he shall confirm a covenant. This man will make some kind of treaty or covenant with many for one week. And always in the Bible, nearly always, the word week, you know, seven days or seven prophetic days or seven years. For seven years. But in the middle of the week, that would be after three and a half years, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. What? These offerings that they've been allowed to, to, to make on the Temple Mount are going to be stopped by this coming dictator, as these other scriptures indicate. He'll bring an end to them. On the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate this terrible prince who is to come and this whole army, even until the consummation is determined, which is poured out upon the desolator. So these things are, are very exciting, and this is a very likely translation, and we need to watch for that. If we're wrong, we will see that. But my feeling is that that is going to happen. And remember, that would indicate, brethren, that seven years ahead of Christ's coming, approximately seven years ahead, a treaty will be made between the coming dictator, the coming Hitler in Europe, and the coming uh, or the, uh, Europe, uh, the Israeli nation, allowing them to offer sacrifices. Now, some of you will immediately say, well, a lot of the Protestant evangelicals believe in that. 
I know that. That's one reason I didn't uh, teach that for all these years. I thought, well, they can't be right. Well, now they're not always wrong. Remember, the world has what? They have a mixture of the knowledge of good and evil. They have some things that are partly true, and this might be partly true. We don't want to be deceived just because some of them believe it. Most Protestants don't believe this, by the way, but some of their scholars do. And I think that most of our council does believe this way, that this is undoubtedly the correct understanding, but we're not being dogmatic about it. But I want you to think about it and watch. Luke 21, 36. Watch, what? Watch world events. He's just been describing them. Watch and pray that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. If we see that the Jews come back and get charge of the Temple Mount through some kind of treaty with some fellow up in Europe, and then they start offering sacrifices, I'll tell you, my friends, the hair is going to stand up on the back of my head, so to speak, and I hope it is yours too. It'll be extremely exciting. You think, wow, then we're in for a countdown. You say, well, no one knows the day or the hour. Well, we still don't know the exact day, and we don't know the exact hour for sure. And I'd like to remind you another thing. When Marx wrote that, no one knoweth, I reviewed that with some Greek scholars, it's present tense. No one knoweth now knows. God did not say that no one ever would know. He says, not even the Son of Man, but only the Father. Go back and read that in Mark 13. Do you think Christ doesn't even know when he's coming back? (laughs) I think that's silly. Of course he knows now, but as a human being, he didn't know then, and they didn't know then, but as we get toward the very end, we may well realize it's got to be, we know, when the trumpets start sounding and all these things begin to happen, of course we'll know it's going to be within a very few weeks or months. And we may guess that it's going to be on the trumpets, could be on atonement, I suppose, or some other time, but probably right on the Feast of Trumpets that year. Maybe some of you will have your pocket calendars and other calendars mean marking off, and we'll know, I don't know. But let's not assume we can't know pretty close to when Christ's coming is as we get right toward the end. That is a misconception. They did not know of then. No man knoweth 2,000 years ago. Anyway, we'll have a very good idea when this thing starts happening if there is such a treaty made. And uh, we do need to understand that and appreciate that's exciting. This suggests a seven-year treaty between the beast and Israel, a treaty that this coming dictator may break in the middle of that time and then turn on Israel and turn on us, as he apparently will at that same time also, of course, and then we'll begin the tribulation, the full tribulation in earnest. We must watch these events. If there is a key event just before Christ's coming. Certainly that one is. You read again, you know, Matthew 20. That is a major key event that leads immediately into Christ's coming or into the Great Tribulation, I mean. We are living in very exciting times, and I hope we can appreciate that. They should not be scary or make you feel bad. It should be exciting. We're here because we're looking forward to the kingdom of God. We can say, thank God Christ is about to come when these things start to happen. Now let's turn again to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. And go back again to verse 31. And forces shall be mustered by this coming final Antiochus Epiphanes, 
this coming Hitler, of whom Antiochus Epiphanes was simply a type. And here's the big antitype coming along, the final beast, the final Hitler over the coming United States of Europe, which itself is called the beast. As Mr. Armstrong used to explain, and it's true, the term uh, king is often used interchangeably for the king and the kingdom, you know, and in the Old Testament and in prophecies. The forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, and they shall take away the daily sacrifice and place there this coming idol, this abomination of desolation. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery, which this man did when he first came in. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And, of course, they had some people back at that time uh, who were very brave and, and did some of those things. But this is a type, and this refers to some things that we may do in these latter days ourselves as these things start to speed up, obviously. Those of the people who understand shall instruct many, and yet for many days they shall fall. Some of our people will fall and be persecuted and even martyred by the sword, flame, and by captivity. Now when they fall, they'll be helped with a little help, but many will join with them by intrigue. And brethren, we're not growing real fast now, although I am happy to report. I was talking to uh, uh, Mrs. Uh, uh, Lyons the other day and uh, Mrs. Amon, who get the go-tos, as they call them, and we're getting far more of the prospective member requests in May than the previous May. And then last month in June, we got again almost double what we got a year ago, and she said it's still coming in real good for July. So I think we are because these world events are picking up and we are getting things going. And I know Dr. Winnell is doing a great job. We have a wonderful team. Mr. Ames has done a great job. Mr. Crockett is helping us get going on, on the Internet and he's helping us get going with some special ads uh, to help get this message out that are being sent out and a special letter, I guess, that he helped write, in fact, wrote most of it to 84, 84,000 people on the mailing list and to stir them up to ask this Middle Eastern prophecy booklet. And we're going to get this mailing list activated. And I think all those things with these world events are going to stir people and we may have more growth in the next two years than we've had in the last several years. I think that's beginning to happen already. But I won't better not uh, talk about it till it happens more than that. <laughs> anyway, when these events happen, a lot of people are going to join with us by intrigue. They're going to say, we want to go on this group to save our hides. Or some of them may be sent in as spies to try to find out what we're doing and, and actually report us or get us in trouble. So we have to understand and yet love them all as they come in and receive them warm. Well, we have nothing to hide. I don't care if half of you are FBI agents. What are you going to get me on? You know what I mean? I've been preaching these things for 54 years. It's not some mystery. Jesus said, I was daily in the temple and taught you. Why did you grab me now? So we could all say, we've been preaching these things all over the world for 54 years. It's nothing secret. We have nothing to hide. But anyway, these things are going to happen. And those of understanding shall fall. People are going to get upset and they'll be scared when the persecution comes to refine them, to purge them. God will test us, test us to make them white. When? Until the time of the end. All right. Coming right down to our time because it is still for the appointed time. Then, in verse 26 now, if I can read this properly. No, it's verse 36. Then the king shall do according to his own will. And frankly, by now, it's not even type. It's the antitype, the final dictator in Europe. 
he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god and speak against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished and so on. This man is going to pretend to be like God. Of course, he's going to have a problem because the great false prophet will also do that and eventually the two of them will get into it and uh, the, the beast shall hate the whore and burn her with fire, it says there in Revelation 17. But at first, the false prophet gives them credibility by his false miracles. And so he's going to think he's very, very great, just like Adolf Hitler. Mr. Armstrong used to talk about the old cartoon, uh, movie cartoon of Mussolini. And Mussolini, you young people, was the Italian dictator in World War II. And he would strut around, and he was called Il Duce. And the people all over the big squares there in Italy, when he would speak from a balcony, uh, Vivil Duce, Vivil Duce, they'd scream out, Long live the Duce, Mussolini. He came to a glorious end, this great man. He was finally shot and hanged in public by his own people, by the Italian peasants. He got what he deserved. Hitler then, who'd burned so many Jews, was finally apparently asked they'd burn him with fire, poured gasoline all over his body and burn his body. And he got done to him what he had done to so many Jews. They that take the sword shall perish with the sword. It's interesting how those things work. Often works out just exactly like God said. But at any rate, these men both magnified themselves, and so this cartoon came along in the movies, and it showed how and they, Hitler and Mussolini supposedly came in this barber shop, and Hitler jacked his barber chair. You know, he'd be able to turn it up, and your chair would go up, and then Mussolini jacked his up higher. Then Hitler jacked his up higher, and then Mussolini, pretty soon they, they jacked him up so far they each hit their head in the ceiling. <laughs> they were so filled with vanity. But that's the way these uh, dictators quite often are. They think they're so great. And he shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women. He's not really going to worship this false church, which is often called the desire of women. He'll simply accommodate them to use their power and influence, nor regard any God this coming Hitler. So it's not talking about the false prophet who is the religious leader. He says there's the military leader who's cynical. For he shall magnify himself above them all. But in their place, in the place of all the gods of the Catholic Church and all the other gods, he shall honor a god of fortresses. He's going to build the greatest military establishment in the history of the earth. He's going to have the latest weapons. The Germans have been absolutely outstanding. Their tanks were better than our tanks in the Second World War, as most of our generals admitted. And they were first, just about to be first, to get the atomic bomb. And the Americans on the way back from some other raid, as you know, somehow decided to drop their bomb for some reason on Pinamunda just in case there was something there. They didn't realize. And after the war turned out, that was where the Germans were manufacturing almost completed their atomic bomb. And God Almighty helped us win the war more than most people realize. He gave us the victory in World War One. He gave us the victory in World War Two. You've heard us tell about the miracle of Dunkirk. And I've had so many older men over there, not many but a few, who lived through that tell me, literally with tears in their eyes, about the miracle of the calm waters, as they say it in their British accent. And this preacher was saying, as I went in this big cathedral, I said, how many does this hold? He said, well, about 2,200. I said, how many do you normally have? He said, oh, I was afraid you would ask. They had about 20 or 30 or 60, whatever it was. I said, mainly old women. He said, you got it, you got it. 
old women, you know, know their end is near and they're more humble than the men. So they would, they would, well, the only ones go to church, basically. And then he had this funny glisten in his eyes. And he said, you know, the last time this thing was packed out, and he used that term, was right after the miracle of calm waters. All our soldiers got off Dunkirk, and we knew it was God. And all over the nation, the bells of the churches were ringing. He said the churches were never so full again before or since in our time, except after that time. So, brethren, our God is real, and He does intervene, and He has intervened for us. But now we've turned aside from Him more than ever. He will intervene for you, and He will intervene for me if we serve Him and obey Him and keep His commandments. And seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these material things will be added to you. Not what you want, but what you need. So this man is going to worship the God of fortresses. He may have direct energy weapons. He will have modern chemical weapons. He will have nerve gases and things perhaps that have never been invented to this time. Massive armies and and military weaponry. And a God which his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver. The national treasury will be given over to building a huge military establishment. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God which he shall acknowledge... Say, he's going to go along with the Pope and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to divide, them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. He, of course, will work with these ten kings under him, you see, and that is what will happen. So that's the coming United States of Europe. As I said, this power in the Middle East, this coming Arab Union, is going to provoke them to get together. So the Arab Union will come, and that's going to provoke as they start getting together. These Arab nations perhaps provoke the final union of the ten nations in Europe to become an even stronger power because they're more educated and have more sophisticated weapons. And the next verse, at the time of the end, our time now, the king of the south, who will this be? Not Iran. They're not south of Jerusalem, I repeat. They're northeast of Jerusalem. Probably Egypt. That's been the normal leader, but it could be Saudi Arabia or some other nation some king from some other nation, shall attack him. Who? Him is him, the king of the north. That's who he's been talking about. And the king of the north shall come against him, you see, like Hitler did. Hitler's Luftwaffe, his uh, air force, of course, was so swift, they called called his whole military establishment, his power, the Blitzkrieg, lightning war. He would come so swiftly. And the Luftwaffe, the wind war, they were the air force, of course. He shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, modern tanks, Polaris missiles, and so on. They couldn't use modern names like that. What if he'd had a word that said Polaris missiles back then? They wouldn't know what that meant. <laughs> he had to use weapons of destruction that they would understand. But they're modern tanks and modern chariots and so forth. And many ships and, and submarines, Polaris-type submarines and others, and he shall enter the countries and overwhelm them and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land. So this coming Hitler is going to go right down there because there's been some kind of rebellion and some trouble there. So he's going to come in there again. And many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. That's one reason we have often thought that the place of safety might 
please. Again, I'm, su- I'm suggesting that Daniel 9 might mean a seven-year treaty. I didn't say you put that as a way of salvation. It's not. It's a possibility. And the place of safety might, I say again, might be a place we call Petra, but we don't know that. Again, Mr. Armstrong often said, if the Bible indicates where the place of safety is, if, he said, Petra is the most likely place because there are several hints about the rock and Petra and its location. This is one of them. This coming dictator is going to enter the Holy Land, Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown, but who escapes? Edom, Moab, Ammon. And the Moabites are the modern Jordanians and the Ammonites. Ammon is the capital of modern Jordan. Moab and Ammon are the people that live there. And that's where Petra is in modern Jordan. So that may be a hint as to where it is, plus many, many others, of course, that are more direct. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. So the place of safety will not be there (laughs) because the coming dictator is going to come against the land of Egypt specifically. Why? Because it probably is going to be where the king of the south is. That's why. That's the one he mentions first, you see. They're not going to come at Persia, but they're going to come right down at Egypt. Because that's probably, that's where the king of the south used to be and may be again. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and all over all the precious things of Egypt. Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. They're right next door. But news from the east and north. What's east and north of Jerusalem? Look at a map. The Soviet Union. The Russians finally get stirred up and may be joined by the Chinese and others, although we don't know about that at this time. Certainly they will be later after the millennium begins. But their trouble will come, and therefore he'll go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many, this coming Hitler. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. No one helps him. Well, it describes that back in Revelation 19. The beast and false prophet are taken by Christ himself, it says, at the end of Revelation 19, and put in the lake of fire. No one will stop Christ from doing that. That will be their end. Our end will be in the kingdom of God. Our end will be made made spirit beings and be given a glorious spirit body as God's full sons. We can look forward to that. So he's going to have this happen. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. There can't be four or five different times like this. Yet the Bible describes it. It's all talking about the same time, the great tribulation at the end of the age. Jesus talked about it as we read in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. And Mark 13. And at that time, this coming tribulation, your people shall be delivered. Everyone found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Is that way back when he's talking about? No, he's talking about the time of the resurrection from the dead. They're going to wake up the dead. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the firmament. We're going to have a face that blazes like the sun in full glory. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Those of us who are busy in God's work, those who get it, those who say this is the most important activity on the face of the earth, 
to get Christ's message out to this world, to prepare for the kingdom of God, to teach people the right way, and eventually be God's servants as Christ comes back to teach them peace and joy and help these people all over Africa, help these people all over Asia, help these people all over Central and South America under these dictators who are often starving and oppressed and being beaten and raped and humiliated and killed. Say, now you can be free. The real liberty that's going to come in the kingdom of God. And we can have that opportunity to teach them God's ways. We're the pioneers. We have that chance now. Let's seize that opportunity. Let's be grateful that Christ is coming. And that these events are happening one after the other after the other. Just like God says. Thank God. This is good news. And brethren, the stage, as I said, is now being set through this Arab upset, this wave of hate against America, Britain, and Israel to drive those nations together. I don't say it's going to be next week or next month, but within the next two to four years probably they will get together in a way that they have not done. I know some of you young people, you think four years is forever. It doesn't not very long according to the way I've lived and according to human history. But these things are developing, and they're going to get together in a real union. And the king of the north, the European dictator will also get together within the next several years. And you will see these things happen before your very eyes. So let's be excited about it and be humbled that we have the opportunity to understand, the opportunity to be protected, and the opportunity to help teach these people God's ways in love and in service in a very few years in the kingdom of God.